What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today we're bringing you part two of our live event with James Comey, former director of the FBI, and screenwriter and satirist Armando Iannucci on crime, punishment and Donald Trump. Part one of this event was released on our last episode and is available now to all our listeners. Do take a listen to that first if you can. Part three of this conversation is available exclusively to subscribers. This event took place in June 2023 in Union Chapel, London. That's, I think, where the rest of the world first got to see you. It was in the Hillary Clinton campaign, uh, where as head of the FBI, you were advised to look into. uh, And I said, I'm not sure any of us really understood what the problem was. There was issues with email servers. It's bad enough for Donald Trump at the time to say, lock her up. Uh, despite the fact that four years on, he's got the nuclear codes in, in his bathroom. Um, first of all, what was that like being in the spotlight like that? Not just for you as a head of the FBI, but, but personally as well. Really, It's not something you ask for when you take on the job, I suppose. No, you, you expect that because it's the FBI, you're going to be involved in things that are going to be controversial. I can remember the day that my deputy briefed me on the fact that this, the Clinton email investigation, and it was about the question of when the secretary, Secretary Clinton, communicated on an unclassified email system. It actually is not about it being her server. Mm-hmm. When she communicated on an unclassified system about classified topics, did that rise to the level of a crime? And I remember him telling me the case had been opened well below me. Mm-hmm. Despite what you see on TV, the director doesn't investigate. And he said, um, as he turned to walk out of my office, he turned back and said, you know you're totally screwed, right? And I, I kind of laughed and I said, yep, nobody gets out alive. But what he meant was, we're about to begin a criminal investigation of one of the two likely candidates for president of the United States. One half of the politically active are gonna be unhappy with the result. I had no idea we could make both halves unhappy by the time we were done, but, <laughs> but one half of- Shows how impartial you are really, yeah, if, uh, maybe. if everyone's against you. But it's gonna, he said, you know, <clears throat> and in a way that was freeing, that we knew mm. that, and so I talked about this with the team mm. and I said, do the work in a professional way. Let me worry about how we're gonna explain it, how we're gonna defend it, just do it well. And they worked for the next year without, we didn't talk about it. No one knew what we were doing. And, but I knew that when we got to the end and I saw no prosecutable case there for reasons that 
any person who wishes to see could understand, and it's distinction to the Trump situation, I knew that that was going to be um, in the middle of a political storm, mm -hmm. which is why I spent so much time offering transparency to explain to the American people, consistent with our policies, here's what we did, here's what we found, here's why this is not a prosecutable case, and then spent the rest of the summer getting attacked on Capitol Hill by Republicans as I defended the work and said, no, we're done. We are done. This is over. There's no there, there. Election can go on. We're out of it. And then that turned out not to be true. And then 11 days before the election. Yeah, turned out you, not to be true. You wrote, there was a letter issued by you saying that you had to reopen yeah. the investigation. Now, first of all, you must have known that that, that was such a sensitive moment that uh, you know, just 11 days to go before the election, it, the polls showing it was a very tight race. I think people still thought Clinton would win, but there was a margin that was very small. So you knew you were stepping into something much more sensitive. And oh, gosh, yeah. I knew the moment, I remember, I could picture myself the moment walking into the room on October 27th and my team telling me that we have now found hundreds of thousands of Secretary Clinton's emails. And I hope you all don't know these details, but on this guy, Anthony Weiner's laptop. And we know the, about Anthony Weiner. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> sorry, but and that we we also see on there, although we've not been allowed to look at them yet, the emails from her missing BlackBerry, mm -hmm. and so they said, look, the Department of Justice is reopened. They want to get a search warrant. We don't think we can review them. We know we can't review them before the election, and we think the result might change. And you told Congress under oath repeatedly, this is done. This is done, and you can trust us at the FBI. So now, what do I do? And I could see two options, and they were both doors to hell. I mean, I could, I could say nothing, which would be an act of concealment, given that I had testified that we're mm -hmm. done, and let the American people vote, mm -hmm. not knowing that I know that what they're relying on is a lie. Or I could speak, which is also a door to hell, and maybe have an impact on the election because people would misunderstand what we were saying. And so reasonable people can disagree about those, but I hope people who stare at it can see just what a nightmare it was. So to come back to your question, you asked how did it feel? Uh, it was numbing, mm -hmm. it, but also in a way freeing because I thought both of these options are so bad, so bad that I simply have to choose the one that's least bad and most consistent with the values of the institution. And so I will try to do that. And then I tried to dump it on my boss <laughs> too, because I thought, you know, this is going to be so bad for me personally. So a little moment of cowardice that I'm yeah. confessing. And so I asked my chief of staff to call the attorney general's chief of staff and say, here's what he thinks, but he would welcome a conversation with her. And the answer came back, she disagrees, but she does not wish to speak to him. <laughs> and I knew what that was. I mean, I've been around. I knew that was, you will take this hit. And that was part of what made my wife so upset mm -hmm. because she was asking me, why you? Why does it have to be you? And there was no alternative. It, that I, even in hindsight, as painful as it is, despite the, the, uh, the fact that p some people believe, although I'm, I'm not sure that's the case, some people believe it helped Donald Trump get elected, I still think about the decision the same way. I, I think knowing what I knew mm -hmm. then, I can't conceal, I have to speak. Was there, was there part of you that thought, oh, she's going to win anyway, and therefore this will be, you know, this will be horrible headlines, but it won't have a final effect? Not consciously, because I was really trying to put myself in a bubble mm -hmm. and not look at polls, mm -hmm. not think. One of my best people 
a woman named Tricia Anderson asked me, I, I made the decision, but 12 of us debated these and, and argued and, and uh, had sleepless nights over it. She said, should you consider that what you're about to do may help elect Donald Trump president of the United States? And it took the air out of the room. Mm -hmm. And I said, Tricia, thank you for saying that. But no, I can't consider that. Because down that path lies the death of the FBI as an independent institution. You cannot have the FBI director making decisions based on who he thinks should be president. And I said, so I have to push that to the side. Now, the reason I say that in response to your question is, I was operating in a world where the very air was, Clinton's gonna beat Trump. And so I'd be a fool not to think that it might have had some impact on me. And that this is all subconscious, but I know how powerful mm -hmm. the subconscious is. I must have been thinking in some way that if you conceal this and she's elected and the result changes, her presidency is over. But I don't remember thinking that consciously because I thought I shouldn't be making that political calculation. And, and irrespective of what effect it had, and, and it's, we, we can't measure it. it. It is the case, though, that people did blame you. You've sure. had people personally say you caused the election. I mean, how, how does that, what, what does that feel like to be suddenly in that, that spotlight where I think it's not just you, but, but you know, personally, your family, your... Yeah, first of all, I'm married to someone who thought that at the time and wanted <laughs> Hillary Clinton to be elected president, which I totally understand her passion and my daughter, all four of my daughters' passion. It makes sense to me. But so the, the pain of that was, I actually missed the full extent of the pain. And they made this limited series based in part on my book. And it wasn't until I watched that. And this is a drama, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, a drama starring Brendan Gleeson and Jeff Daniels. Mm. And I, I had missed the impact on my family. If you'd asked me at the time, I would have said, sure, sure, I get it. But I know I missed it because when I watched those scenes, I started crying the first right. time I saw it. Right. And I thought, you fool, because I could push it away. I didn't read Twitter comments, I still don't. don't I could don't. shut the window, <laughs> but the people who couldn't shut the window were my kids mm. and my wife. And it should have been obvious, but you, you all know this, the pain you feel for someone you love is more intense than the pain you feel for yourself. And so I missed that. And I've told them all I'm sorry that I, I was so focused here that I missed that. But yeah, the pain they absorbed seeing what people said about me, what the assumptions people made about me that I was trying to help like Donald Trump president and all this stuff was caused a tremendous amount of pain for my family that I missed. Well, that's interesting you said that because, I mean, that's very honest and open of you to admit something personal like that. But that makes me then think, is there anything of, of how you made that original decision that you would do differently? Or have you thought about, given that you say that you're in that sort of bubble, is there anything you felt you missed when making the decision or you didn't take into account? Or? Oh, I mean, I've gone back a thousand yeah. times. And so if these are always very difficult time travel yeah. conversations yeah. to have, and you shouldn't see yourself, I think, when you go back in time or something, but I, I, if I knew what I knew then, I think I made the right decision in the right way. That's the most important one. People can disagree, but I will defend at the end of my life the integrity of the decision mm -hmm. and the way it was made and the reasons it was made. It was made for the reasons, even if you disagree, that you would want a decision like that to be made and not to help a candidate. But there are things that I didn't know at the time and couldn't reasonably have known that I now see that I wish I had known. Did but that's a conversation that leads you down a rabbit hole. Okay, and, and after all that, when you know, after the election, so did you have any kind of contact with Hillary Clinton or the Clinton camp or any kind of discussion 
I didn't. I got a message passed through a trusted intermediary mm -hmm. after the, before the elections that tell Jim it's going to be okay. Um, and I don't know exactly what that meant, but I've, I've never met Secretary Clinton, mm -hmm. and so I haven't since. I've seen and totally understand mm -hmm. the pain that she experienced, and it, it doesn't surprise me that she, not knowing me, would see that, oh, he was out to get me kind of thing. I understand that, and that's, that's painful in a separate way, but I have not had any conversations with her. Now, where after the 2020 election, I hope there's a PhD out there right now working on her dissertation who's looking at the way the vote moved in exactly the same way in 20 as it did in 16. And I was home in my pajamas in 2020. And so I, it would be wonderful if someday someone proves it was totally irrelevant, but doesn't change how I think about the decision. I really don't think I could choose the other door as painful as that is. And that is the frightening thing, the 2020 election, again, it was just a handful of several thousand votes here or there in three or four states. And it narrowed in the, the same way it did in 16. You know. The late deciders <laughs> broke for Trump the way they did in 16. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to look at the 2020 result and say, aha, it was the FBI in 16. <clears throat> and, you know, we have Tate of Donald Trump ringing up Georgia asking for how many new votes to find. That was after the election. That was after the election, yeah. but that was prior to the inauguration of yeah. Biden. So that was trying to uh, recount the election. Yeah. Um, is that going to be even? Is that going to be a tougher? Uh, is that going to be tougher on Trump? That that particular that that charge hasn't been made yet. The interfering in elections. Is that going to be a? Is that going to be an impossible one for him to get round? I think it's going to be a difficult case for prosecutors to make, again, because of that chaotic mind and his habit of speaking in the Cosa Nostra way, mm. right? He doesn't say, I'm going to burn down your candy store. He says to someone who's with him, isn't that a lovely candy store? I wonder if it's insured. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so that, that even, even this statement in Georgia, if I were a prosecutor, I'd look <clears throat> at that statement in Georgia and say, well, what did he actually say mm. there? He didn't say, I know the votes aren't there. He said, I believe I was defrauded. I, was, I lost by 11,000 votes, so all I need to find... I just need... It was like a plea for, you know, a, I don't know, a donation or something. It was, please sign my petition, wasn't it? I just need 11,000 votes, please, just... But I'm a tough, nearly a, there. A tough read on which to balance a yeah. criminal case against him. And similarly with January the 6th. Again, think about the way he talked that yes. day. It's always this nice candy store. And that's another hard case to make, which, as I said at the beginning, which is why I always thought, as soon as I heard about this documents thing, that may be what his undoing. You mentioned Cosa Nostra, and I want to get on to the novel, the book, um, Central Park West, which features the mob. You yourself, before you were, became head of the FBI, you were a district, a federal District Attorney in New York. Right, I was an assistant United States Attorney, and then I was the United States Attorney. Okay, this is complicated. This, some, oh, yeah. this is. <laughs> I was a well, prosecutor in New York, <laughs> but you prosecuted the mob. Yes, the the Gambino family, yep. um, and successfully, you saw no doubt the mob face to face. What was really interesting in the novel is this sense of this, the, the codes of honor. They really are there, aren't they? That, that this is how the mob operates. You know, they will only among their own, but they, they won't assault, they won't harm officials, police. Uh, innocent. There's a, there's a sense of strange 
coded systems. Yeah, they have rules. Yes. Now, most of them are sort of like the rules against fighting in rugby, that, that yeah. they're on the books, but it, it happens all the time. But the one that they abide in the American mafia, it's the reverse in Sicily, is they have a rule when they induct someone, they say, we do not harm law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And that's not about morality, that's about effectiveness. Because if you think about the power of the state as against Cosa Nostra, in Sicily, there's no such rule, arguably because the state doesn't have the power to crush Cosa Nostra mm -hmm. the way the US mm -hmm. does. When I was first a federal prosecutor, a mob guy killed a federal agent in New York, a mob guy named Gus Faraci, and it wasn't even clear he knew the guy was a federal agent, it was an undercover drug deal. Mm -hmm. And the moment that the agent was killed, two hunts began, ours to find Gus Faraci and Cosa Nostra's to find him, and they found him first, and they shot him with a machine gun in the face on the street in Brooklyn, so he couldn't have an open casket at his funeral to send a message to us, we solved this problem. Mm. And they're so worried about the state crushing them that it's, a, it's my favorite rule in the mafia, you don't harm law enforcement. And <laughs> the, the people- We I, all have a favorite rule in right. the mafia. Uh, <laughs> and I've gotten lots of threats in my career, but, yeah. but they were from people too disorganized and too stupid to realize if it wasn't me, it would be a long line of people behind me. And so, yeah, they're, but part of it is the mob guys tell themselves these things as a way of explaining their existence, that, that I'm a noble warrior, you prosecutor a noble warrior. I had a mafia hitman pass me a note during a trial after he read that I got some recognition from the Bar Association, and the note read, Dear Mr. Comey, I read of your award. Congratulations, it is well-deserved. Signed, Lorenzo Menino. <laughs> and I'm trying to put Lorenzo Menino in jail for the rest of his mm -hmm. life. <laughs> But he had this, this idea, which is silly, but this idea that we are adversaries. And so I accept you, you should accept mm -hmm. me kind of thing. And, but they're bullies, and these are just stories they tell themselves. There's this interesting, my favorite guy, Benny, in the, in the novel, who is the prosecutor who has the specialist knowledge of the mafia. Yes. And knows them, goes to their weddings, and you get, there's a thing that he picks up all the great information like going to weddings and funerals of Mafia, because that's when people come who aren't invited, but who know the, the family, so you can start getting photos of the, the wider And circle. he's a real person. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a novel, yeah. but I based him on a close friend of mine who died in 2006, who covered Mafia weddings, funerals, and his favorite was to cover wakes, because right. he said, they all come, because you don't have to bring a gift, yes. and they're coming to make sure the guy's dead. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and yeah. so he would sit outside wakes with a telephoto lens and take hundreds and hundreds but of pictures. But they get to know him. They know, oh, there he is with his yeah. camera. And to respect Thumbs him up. in an odd way yeah. and ask that he be the one to arrest them and that, that he be the one to interview them when they want to cooperate. Mm. And there's a story that a lot of people in New York law enforcement know of a mob boss physically assaulting a younger mobster who spit on Kenny McCabe's car because we don't ever treat Kenny that way. He is a... He's an adversary, you treat him with respect. So I've tried to capture that. Yes. It's not fiction, but it's, no, it's a real person. No, I found it eye-opening because, because I, I suppose, you know, we get the, the, the coverage of the Mafia in, in The Godfather, Sopranos and so on, but you still think that these are fictions. So it's interesting to see that actually that slightly absurd set of conventions still plays itself out. And, and life was really imitated. You mentioned The Godfather. Mm. A little known fact is that 
The mob really wasn't what the Godfather depicted, but the Godfather shaped the mob in America because yes. <laughs> the American Mafia stopped inducting new members in 1957 and didn't reopen their books until 1975. And so there was a generation of really bad people who couldn't get on the inside and see what it was really like. And they all went in 1972 and saw The Godfather. And I had a witness tell me, I remember the day I walked out and the sunlight hit my face and I thought, that's the life. Yes. <laughs> and we started talking that way and acting that way. And, and so really art shaped life. There we are, we're back to that. So it's not just the West Wing being enamored of the glamorized version and the TV version, but it's there in crime as well. It's the, it's the kind of cinematic image that they and But I've always wondered, why did they do it? But you know, that opening line in Goodfellas, since I was young, I've always wanted to be a gangster. Why? What, what, what do they get out of it? They know it's all going to end badly. Has, has any gangster's life ended highly successfully? The founder of the Gambino crime family, Carlo Gambino, we know he was the founder because we named it after him, and uh, he died a free man. Right. And he died a free man because he was pre-Godfather. He only discussed, he lived in a simple house, he only discussed family business with two people, only outdoors when whispering. And so it wasn't about Carlo in the way it was with so many mobsters, so he died a free man. But most of them, I don't know, I shouldn't say all, but nearly all of them spend their life either in dying in jail or, or being killed. But it's about search for identity. Mm. I mean, they, mm. they tell themselves these stories because it gives them significance. It, to come back to, to Donald Trump, it's about filling some hole in them. Mm. I'm a soldier. I remember the Sicilian Cosa Nostra. I had killers who'd killed 38 and 25. But they did it, they told themselves, as part of a, a battle. I was mm. ordered to do it. I'm a fixture in an organization that's old and meaningful and has rules. So it's a way of finding mm. a center for their lives. Mm. It's, uh, there's, there's, Don't yeah, do it. Stay away from it. <laughs> yes, there's one character, one mobster in the book who, just before he's being shot, says, oh, just get it over with. I've had a good, you know, I've had a good run. Get it over with. Um, that's, I find that chilly. Uh, but you personally, how did you feel taking on the mob. Did you feel frightened? Did you feel this is something that uh, you know that, that your career was being leading up to? What's the? I didn't feel frightened. Mm -hmm. and I'm not kidding because I put comfort in the the rule, yes, the rule, the rule yes, against the harming rule. law enforcement. Yeah. And there were some odd incidents. My wife came one day to watch the trial, which took against the Gambino brothers. Mm -hmm. It was a six-month trial. It took place in the courtroom 318, mm -hmm. which is the site of a lot of the action in the novel. And as she walked in, an FBI agent, they're not all the sharpest knife in the drawer, uh, started yelling to her, Mrs. Comey, we have a seat right here for you. <laughs> and she's, she's hunching over and trying, he could, and every time she turned, he yelled louder, yeah. come over, come over. <laughs> but myself, I didn't worry because of that reason. They understand that it's, mm. it's not about you, it's about the system that's come for them. Right. But I loved the work and I found it addictive and I would have stayed, but my, my amazing wife didn't love, she loved to visit New York, she didn't like the idea of living there, and so we moved away mm. to Virginia where she wanted to live and I thought I would be a prosecutor there for the rest of my career. Well, uh, obviously after Trump, you've got to wait, you've moved on from something completely different from Trump with this uh, novel, which is about a misogynistic New York-based politician who gets away with it, um, <laughs> except 
and this isn't a spoiler because it happens in the opening pages, he's murdered. Um, tell, tell us about what, are you trying to do something as well as have the fun of writing a thriller? Is there something you're trying to do in, in telling that story? Because for me, what's interesting is just the detailed accuracy of how an investigation would go about. And, and there are all sorts of twists and turns and unexpected rugs being pulled out from you. Just tell us about the process that made you decide that that's, that's what you next wanted to do. I, I was talked into trying it, mm -hmm. and I initially resisted the idea. And then I thought, when I started it, that I found it addictive because it was a way to tell a really fun, cool story that's drawn from cases I've worked. I mean, I had a defendant mm -hmm. found stuffed in the trunk of his car with a canary in his mouth and a bullet hole in his head. And so I could take that. What's the canary? Can tell me the significance yeah, of the it's, canary. It's to show that he was singing. He right. was speaking and offering to the world his secrets, and he paid for that. Mm -hmm. And so it's an old mob sing, uh, symbol. You better keep your mouth shut. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I could tell these stories, take people inside these worlds in a way that's nostalgic for me, but that was very, very current. Because when I was writing it, my oldest daughter was the chief of the organized crime unit in that office. And she was in courtroom 318 prosecuting Glenn Maxwell when I was writing this. Wow. And so there was this weird crossover. Mm. When she was four, I was in the same courtroom prosecuting John and Joe Gambino. And now my biggest kid, my oldest daughter, is in the same room. And so I had to make the protagonist a woman. And then it, it flew out of me because then I was thinking not about me, I was thinking about this woman I love and making an amalgamation of all four of my daughters. And it became a labor of love in ways I didn't expect. And, and so what's, in, what's interesting, all the characters are explored, not just from what they do professionally, but the impact it has on their personal lives or their, how they might have misprioritized work or a family or, or them deciding to move from work to family. You know, the, those very human decisions that they have to make on a day-by-day -day basis as well. Yeah, and I was trying to show that what the people are really like, they're flawed, mm -hmm. as, as I am, as we all are, and it's and that you can do the work in the right way and still have it be incredibly exciting and difficult. And so I tried to present complicated, interesting characters. It helped that in the lead character I was picturing my daughter, her investigator I was picturing my beloved friend Kenny McCabe, and I could hear the voices because I knew these people so well. And so that's, I mean, I, I, I literally love Nora because she's based on my four daughters, but but I love the character enough. I've already written the second book in which Nora is another crime novel, in which Nora is at the center of it. And uh, compliments on the swearing, good top quality swearing, in, in, yeah. especially from Benny. Uh, There's a lot of swearing in law enforcement and in Cosa Nostra. Yeah, I particularly like uh, You Motherless Fuck, which is, uh, <laughs> yeah. which nobody quite understands. But it yeah, I don't know what, it, I still don't know I, what it, it meant. It seems ruder than it actually is, actually. It's a, uh, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, so. <laughs> So start thinking, we'll come, come to questions in a few seconds. One thing I did like also was the reference to uh, some of the, um, the hits that the, the feds do. They, they hire lots of actors. So sometimes, like, if two people that you're observing in a cafe or a restaurant, you, you want to just capture what it is they're saying. Sometimes the entire rest of the restaurant could be people on your side, could be feds and... Yeah. I mean, are they all professionals or are they actors or? No, they're all members the... of the FBI's surveillance yeah. group. And are I... they bust in for So that's like? real life. Yeah. I tried not to give uh, the bad guys too much away, but yeah, yeah. I've worked cases where yeah. the final deal was going to be in a restaurant, and so the FBI closed the restaurant, 
and everyone in the restaurant, including those dressed as waitstaff, were FBI surveillance group people. And so they are really good at what they do and an incredible resource that's little known. So I thought no, I, I could yes. show it to the readers without giving in too much away about the tradecraft. Because I'm already intrigued as to where do they come from? Is there a big studio that they rehearse in? Is, <laughs> is there a costume department? Uh, what, I'm just in, genuinely intrigued as well, to- Well, you know, they call the location the set. Yeah. 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 But yeah. They really, they're not actors. No. <laughs> do they break at one o'clock for a big lunch? On, There's no the food street? cart, no <laughs> food cart. No, I think there's an interesting show there, I think. Just hold that thought. Hold that thought. This could be our IP that we, uh, yeah. Right, so, we ought to, I mean, there's so much more we could discuss, but I think the best thing would be to hand over to you lot and see what it is you want to talk about. And yes, so. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squad. The third and final part of this conversation is available exclusively to our subscribers who can access all episodes ad-free now. This event was produced by senior producer Connor Boyle. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next, who we should have on and what our future debate should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencequared.com or on Twitter at Intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencequared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.